Thanks, Shamrock. Thirty-two minutes. Hey, I'm 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 absolutely convinced that Jeremy and Brandon only like me because I take them out to Applebee's after the gathering on Thursday nights when they come to lead worship. You know what I'm saying? Post gathering pig out. So um, here's the deal. The only important thing you need to know about me is I married a, a beautiful woman who's more beautiful on the inside than even more than on the outside. And I've got two. I've got about to be a four year old and about to be a two year old, and they're rock stars. That's all you need to know. That's the most important things that you need to know about me. But besides that, I'm absolutely. I, it's an honor and it's a privilege to be here tonight hanging with you guys. I, I, love, I love you. I love this community. I know so much about this community and watching it grow and watching it come to fruition in Mark's life and in the passion that Mark's put forward. Mark is not only a friend, he's also a mentor in my life. I, I respect that man. I respect what's happening here. I respect the movement known as the church, known as the gospel that Matthias is a part of. And the reality tonight is this, this, is, uh, this, this is a celebration of the kingdom tonight. As we come together, this is a celebration of the kingdom. This isn't a celebration of our church. This isn't a celebration of, of songs. This isn't a celebration of showing up on an evening. This is a celebration of the kingdom. This is a celebration of the cross through which we just got celebrating the, on this past Sunday. This is the reality of the, of the cross, of the gospel alive and working in us. And this is a celebration. And I love what Jamont said as we open up the night, that worship is more than just showing up and singing some songs. I've been saying this the last several weeks, but when one of the things that I believe that the North American church has to get right is we have to get worship right. Because if we, worship is just the overflow, it says in Luke chapter 6 verse, verse 45, it's just the overflow of what's happening in our hearts. And if we come in and we just sing some songs, that's not worship, that's just singing some songs. But as we bring the overflow of worship that we've been worshiping all week long into the place, what a gift we have of gathering as the community. What a gift we have as the church gathers tonight, yes? We didn't come to church tonight. The church gathered in a place, in a building tonight, and we get to, out of the overflow of our heart, worship because of what Jesus is doing in our hearts and in our lives and transforming and renewing and restoring and becoming who we were meant to originally be, yes? That's why we're here tonight. That's the celebration of tonight. And so it's a great privilege. It's a great honor. I love your leadership at this church. I've walked with them. We've prayed with them. We've cried with each other. We've, we've struggled together. I love it. It's a great honor to be here. And so you are blessed to have the leadership that you have. And, and if you haven't, I want to encourage you, go up to your elders. Go up to Matt and to, and to Jeff and to Mark. Go up to Jeremy. Go up to Brandon. And just thank your leadership for doing what they do, for being who they are, because it's rare to have that type of leadership in a place like this. And so if, if it's been a while since you've thanked them, go up and thank them and, and, and be, make sure you're praying for them because this is a great privilege that we have again to be the church. If you can tonight with me, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to we're going to jump into a passage of Scripture. We just, as our student ministry at our church, we just went through the book of Philippians. And, um, and something about this passage, A, the, the biggest reason why we're going through this passage tonight is because I'm still wrestling with this. And so tonight, I, I guess my prayer is that we'll just wrestle together. So I'll invite you into the tension. And, and, and real quick, one of the things about me is I believe that tension, I believe that tension is a brilliant gift. Because in the moments of tension, in the moments that there's tense, I believe that opportunities come in the moments of tension. And not only in the moments of tension, I also believe that because of tension, opportunities present themselves, and it's only through opportunities that movement will ever take place. 
And so tonight, we have an opportunity, again, as the bride of Christ, we have an opportunity to take some steps because of the tension as we open up the scriptures and we look at the life of Paul, ultimately looking at the gospel. So if you can, again, we're going to start in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse, verse 1. And let me give you just a little bit of context. I'm going to be preaching on NIV. I think it's going to be NIV on the screens. Um, a little bit of context is this. I know you guys are going through 1 Peter right now. This book is written roughly about the same time as 1 Peter. This is written about 61 AD. I know that Peter, that 1 Peter is written somewhere in between 60 to 68 AD. They're still, they're still loose on the, the exact date there. But the good thing is in the known world, the church in Philippi, is, is struggling still with persecution and the suffering coming at being a follower of Christ, being a sold-out disciple. They're experiencing very similarly what First Peter and what Peter's writing about in First Peter. And so, although contextually being not in First Peter, contextually this is the same exact conversation essentially that is taking place. And so, what's happening is Nero is the, the Roman emperor at the time. He was, he was uh, reigning from about 54 AD to about 68 AD for your history buffs. And he was the one that really ushered in and was the catalyst for the, uh, for the early church's persecution. He was the one who made sport of persecuting the Christians in, in the Colosseum and at Circus Maximus. He was the one who was famous for setting Rome ablaze, setting it on fire, and then blaming the Christians. He was the one that tried to show the Christians in their quote-unquote love festivals that they would eat the flesh of Jesus and drink the blood of Jesus, and they would be called the way that they would be called just even socially. So the social persecution, along with the physical per persecution of what it meant to be be a follower of Christ in this time was where it began to reach its climax. This, the church in Philippi, when Paul planted this church, was the very first church ever, ever in Europe. This is the first church ever in Europe, and Paul has an immense, deep affection for this church. This church, because of the people and the leaders in this church, they were responsible for supporting Paul when he was in prison. When you were in prison, in prison, you had to literally, if you didn't have anyone to support you, to give you food, to bring you drink, they weren't going to feed you and drink you, and ultimately you would die. Paul is literally writing from a prison in Rome, literally handcuffed every four hours to a different elite guard, not just some guard, but the elite Roman guard handcuffed on shifts every four hours, and he's probably dictating this letter to Timothy as Timothy's penning this letter to the church in Philippi. Now, what's going on here is over and over we'll see Paul with this refrain of rejoice or rejoice or take joy or make my joy. Over and over again, there's a refrain of joy. There's a refrain of rejoicing. First, uh, chapter 3, first verse. Finally, bro my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Again, this is the sixth time already in this short four-chapter letter that we see the word rejoice. The sixth time. This is an obvious refrain for Paul. For Paul, rejoice or joy was more, it was more than just a feeling. It was more than just emotion. In fact, it had nothing to do with feelings and nothing to do emotions with emotions. It had everything to do with a verb, with action, despite his circumstance, despite his situation, as followers of Christ, despite our circumstances, despite our situation, because of the revolutionary love story, because of the radical love story of Jesus, the gospel at work in our lives, we ought to rejoice. This, 
This word rejoicing, this concept of worship, this is the obvious response to Jesus' work, to the gospel at work in our lives. This is the obvious response. This is the unique expression of being a Christian. The ability that we can respond in worship despite what's happening in our lives, despite our circumstances, despite what's going on. Right now, for me, to be honest with you tonight, I've got a heavy heart. My grandma back home in New York, who literally I grew up three doors down from, she's suffering at home. She's on her deathbed. She wasn't supposed to make it through the night Friday night or Saturday night or Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. She just, she's a fighter. She's, she's, every day she wakes up, but she's suffering right now. And, and I'm not there with her. I'm not there supporting my wife, my, my mom. I'm not there supporting my family and being there to, to, to share the burden in this. And so my heart's heavy, but despite our circumstances, despite our situations, we are to rejoice because of what God is doing in our lives. In the next chapter, in chapter four, he goes on to say, don't be anxious about anything. But with prayer and petition through thanksgiving, this word thanksgiving is, is, a, is a picture of gratitude. Again, despite our, our circumstances, our situations, and contextually, they're being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They're being persecuted for following Christ. Despite the fact that you're being persecuted, rejoice with me. Finally, brothers, rejoice with me. When he says it in the next chapter, again, the thanksgiving, the gratitude, he says this is the reason why the perfect peace of God that passes all understanding. So in the, in the situation with my, with my mom back home, who's in grief, who's grieving uh, the, the suffering of my grandmother, her mom, who she's literally lived for 57 years, three doors down from, the fact that she has the peace that passes all understanding and is able to rejoice and worship in this moment because of what Jesus is doing, not only in her life, but also in my grandma's life. As Christians, as followers of Christ, despite our circumstances, despite our situations, despite our relationships, we are to simply rejoice and be in awe of his majesty, be in awe mightily of the work that he is doing in our lives and that he has done. It's uniquely Christian. Finally, my brothers, rejoice, not just rejoice for whatever reason, but in the Lord. And it's important that Paul says Lord here because at the time, Philippi is a Roman colony in Macedonia. And so the Roman colony, this is a place where a lot of the ex-Roman soldiers have gravitated towards. They've retired in Philippi. And so they're surrounded, the, the, the people in Philippi, the church in Philippi is surrounded with people who claim that Caesar is Lord, who claim that Nero is Lord. And so Paul is making sure that they know rejoice in the Lord. And he's already explained before this that Jesus is Lord and not be ashamed of that and to accept it, to, to, to join him in his suffering for that. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Paul is beginning to set up where he's going next. He's kind of being redundant. He's repeating himself all throughout this letter. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evil, those men who do evil, those mutilators, 
of the flesh. This is very cutting. This is very striking language from Paul. Paul says, watch out for those dogs. This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor specifically speaking to the people that he's talking about. Who is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about the Judaizers. Now, early Christianity, two of the biggest oppositions to early Christianity was Gnosticism. I know Mark's probably talked a a ton about Gnosticism, but Gnostics essentially believed that they had special knowledge. They believed that flesh was bad, that flesh was evil, and so They believed that Jesus was not, in fact, God because he came in the flesh, and flesh is evil. So the Gnostics, they were traveling literally in Paul's footsteps, and they were trying to to share Gnosticism with the early Christians in the early churches that were being planted. The other opposition, the other opposing voice in the early church was Judaism. Now, Judaism, people who followed Judaism, they they followed the religion of of, uh, the Judaizers, followed the religion of Judaism. Judaism follows the first five books in the Old Testament, known as the Torah, or some of us may know it as the, the Pentateuch. These are the first five books in the Old Testament. Judaism, that's, that is their Bible. That's, that's everything for them. They follow these words to the T, also known for them as the Mosaic Law or the Old Testament Law. For them, the Judaizers believed that observing the Old Testament Law that's found in these first five books was, our, was their ability to be saved. Now, one of these was circumcision. Circumcision, over and over again, you see Paul in every single letter talk about circumcision. Why does Paul talk about circumcision? This was like the hot, one of the hot button topics of the day. Paul's always talking about circumcision because, again, in his footsteps, the Judaizers are coming and they're trying to take the law, the Old Testament law, and put it on the Gentiles and say, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot follow Christ. They used circumcision as a badge of salvation. Over and over and over again, they followed Paul's footsteps saying, you must be circumcised. If you go to Acts chapter 15, verse 1, again, in Jerusalem, there's this big controversy that's happening at the Council of Jerusalem about circumcision. And essentially, the Judaizers are saying that no one can be saved as Paul is beginning to spread the gospel. Again, thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection that now the gospels open up for everybody because Paul and, and, and the apostles spreading the gospel in and throughout all of, all of the known world and into the Gentile nations, they were saying that they must be circumcised. Now this, they're literally saying literal circumcision. Now we can, if we want theologically, get into that the Old Testament picture of circumcision is equivalent to the New Testament picture of baptism. We can get into saying that. We're not going to go there theologically tonight, but what they were trying to do was literally say that the Gentiles must follow this law in order to be saved. This is the same thing as modern-day legalism. This is the same exact thing as saying that there's specific laws, there's specific rules that in order for us to be followers of Christ, we must do. This is the same exact thing as modern-day legalism. It's the same exact thing that we get trapped up on, that we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. In fact, the Old Testament law had 613 laws, 365 of which were were negative don't do's every single day. And then, because I'm not good at math, whatever, 613 minus 365, the opposite, whatever's left over from that was the amount of positive things that they had to do. And so 613 laws, 
because of the contextual difference of that day versus now, they still observe oh, just shy of like 200 of them. If they're still followers of Judaism, they still observe just shy of 200 of these laws. The oppression of following these laws in order to quote unquote be made right in God's eyes is what they believed. And so they were following. Paul is specifically talking about the Judaizers, watch out for those dogs. This is a metaphor. He's using the word specifically dogs because in this day, in Greco-Roman, uh, in the Greco-Roman context, dogs were the lowest of lows. This was like the, the zoological bottom. They, were, they, they, they considered them scavengers. They, they considered them gross. They just considered, considered them bottom dwellers, dogs. And see, he's calling them the, the cultural nuance of the bottom feeders, just the filth of the day. Watch out for these dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. I'll move on for time's sake. Verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. If you want, in your Bibles, you can draw a big, thick line between verses 2 and verses 3. Because Paul's about to make this huge contrast between the Judaizers, and now he says, for it is we who are the circumcision. Who's the we he's talking about? He's talking about them who don't find their wealth or don't find their worth or don't find their hope in being circumcised, but find their hope solely in Christ. And so what Paul's saying here is he's saying both Jews and Gentiles who recognize the gospel, we are the circumcision. Both Jews and Gentiles, both they and we who recognize Christ, in Christ alone, we are the circumcision. At this point, although he, has, he is talking literally about the, the literal circumcision, at this point he's talking about the behavior. He's talking about the identity found in the cross and not just in the physical act of circumcision, not in the rite of circumcision. For it is we who are the circumcision. This is identity language. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is identity language. The word we who worship, this word worship, worship some of your translations may say serve or may say minister. Literally, the concept here, we who worship, this is righteousness. We who belong to righteousness on behalf of the reconciliation ministry of Jesus, who is the estranged relationship between God and man, reconciled through Christ, are now made righteous. Those of us who find our identity in the cross through righteousness, it is we who are the circumcision by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ. This word glory literally means boast who boast in Jesus and Jesus alone. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23. Don't boast in your riches. Don't boast in your wisdom. But boast in knowing God. This word knowing, again, all the way back from the, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, carries a nuance of intimacy. Carries a deep nuance of deeply knowing through experience, knowing through proximity. Boast in the fact that you intimately know Jesus. He's saying glory in the fact that you know Jesus, but give glory to, in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. This is difficult to swallow. As difficult as this is to preach, this is also difficult to listen to. Put no confidence in the flesh. Those of us who worship, who glory, and who put no confidence in the flesh, tonight the reality is through the cross, as we try to quote-unquote, work our way to the cross, work our way to loving Jesus so that he may love us more, put no confidence in the flesh, 
put no confidence in the flesh. This is why over and over again, also in this book where he says rejoice, he also says with thanksgiving or with a heart of gratitude. Because as North American Christians who feel a sense of entitlement, who feel a sense of deservedness based on our heritage, based on our, our, our lineage, based on the fact that we're American, this is very difficult to hear. Who puts no confidence in the flesh because at the end of the day, for me, standing in front of you confessing, I put confidence in the flesh all of the time. And every single time I put confidence in the flesh, also known as pride, also known as status and achievement, where does that leave us? When we put confidence in the flesh, it always leaves us high and dry. It always leaves us unsatisfied. It always leaves us empty. It always leaves us wanting more. Yet why is it tonight? Why is it that we always put confidence in the flesh? Why is it that we seek to, to earn our way, to earn God's love and God's favor, but with a heart of gratitude and a heart of thanksgiving, one recognizes who Jesus is. Luke chapter 17. You guys know Luke very well. Years, two and a half years going through Luke, you know this passage very well. Luke 17, 10 lepers. Jesus heals all 10, tells them to go show themselves to the priests. In the process of showing themselves to the priests after they see their healing, only one, only one stops, turns, and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. In the process of throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, only one recognizes with a heart full of gratitude, only one re truly recognizes the healer, truly recognizes his gifts. The others, unfortunately, recognize that they've been healed, but only one recognizes the healer. Now, what do we know? We know from that text that Jesus says, the other ten have been healed, but you have been saved. I believe in North American Christianity, the more confidence that we put in the flesh, the less we understand grace. The more confidence we put in the flesh, the less we understand grace. Regardless of our Christian rhetoric, regardless that we could toss grace out all the time, regardless that we could toss around the word gospel all the time, regardless of the fact that we can gather and join and we can worship with our arms raised, the further we get removed from a heart of gratitude of what Christ has done for us, the further we'll never understand grace. And the more we'll put confidence in the flesh. By the way, the lack of gratitude is the first step towards idolatry. A lack of gratitude is the first step towards idolatry because when we don't have a, a heart full of gratitude, full of thanksgiving, we're going to, I, we're, the things that we go to, the things that we run to, the things that our flesh puts confidence in are ultimately going to be the things that we idolize. And so for me, it's very easy to idolize my boys. They're adorable. They're, I love my boys. It's, it's easy for me to idolize my boys. It's easy for me to idolize my wife. It's easy for me to idolize the things in the flesh. And when we put confidence in the flesh, we miss the gospel. We miss grace. My prayer tonight is that we may repent, that I may repent my heart of putting confidence in the flesh. By the way, the more that we miss grace, the only way the only, the only way what we find ourselves pursuing Jesus is by trying to earn his love. Apart from grace, we're always going to get into a works-based theology. Apart from grace, with a heart that's not full of gratitude, we're always going to try to work our way to the cross. And it'll never make sense. The gospel will never make sense. 
with a heart that's not filled with gratitude. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. All of a sudden, Paul begins to want to play the game of the Judaizers. They come out, and he's saying, if you want to play this game, let me play this game with you for a second. If you want to play the game of circumcision, if you want to play the game of the Old Testament law, if you want to play the game because you're Jewish, let's play the game. I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more, Paul says. Not only will I play your game, but I will beat you at your game. And not only will I beat you at your game, but I'm going to beat it on your turf. He goes on to say this, but I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. This is right out of Leviticus chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 3, there were to be circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcised on the eighth day. The people of Israel, what the Judaizers were trying to do is every time they came and they followed in Paul's footsteps and were trying to, to push Judaism, they were hoping through circumcision, through observance of the Torah, through observance of the law, they were hoping that the, that the Gentiles would become the people of God. Through observing the law, not through Christ, but through observing the law. He's saying, I already am of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Of the tribe of Benjamin, this is, the tribe of Benjamin was like the, it was the, it was the, the, the most beloved tribe. Now some say that the tribe of Judah, which is the lineage of David, ultimately through Jesus, but the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, Moses calls in the Old Testament the, the tribe of Benjamin as the, as the beloved tribe. This was the place, literally in their, in, in their territory sat the holy city. From the tribe of Benjamin came Saul, Israel's first king. This was a blessed tribe. It was only the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin that ultimately remained. But he's saying, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, the most beloved tribe. He goes on to say, uh, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's beginning to qualify the last three and yet shed light on the next three that he's going to bring up. In regard to the law, the Old Testament law that you observe, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. He's shown his devotion. He's shown his status and achievement. He, in Judaism, he reached the highest level of status and achievement, becoming a Pharisee. As for zeal, verse 6, persecuting the church. This is a great moment for us to realize that for the things that we find devotion and zeal for or towards may not be the things that Jesus finds zeal for. As devoted as, as so much zeal as Paul had of persecuting the early church, what does he say now? He says, uh, he says of which I, uh, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, as for legalistic righteousness, he's even calling out the righteousness of this day. As for legalistic righteousness, as for observing the Torah, observing the law, as for the legalistic righteousness, faultless. This word means blameless. It doesn't mean sinless. It means blameless. It means that Paul's lineage, his history, his story, as far as Jewish traditions go, was absolutely impeccable. He, nobody reached the levels that he reached. It was absolutely impeccable. And he goes on to say, verse 7, but whatever was to my prophet, this word prophet, he's playing on something that he said in chapter 1, verse 21. Whatever is to my, uh, for me to live is Christ, this prophet. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, but to die is Christ. In those moments, I can, I can only see Paul in these moments as he's, as he's cuffed, 
And the reason he says that in the first chapter is because Epaphroditus, who's coming back from Philippi, who's delivering news that the gospel is being spread throughout Philippi, he's sitting there, he's rejoicing in the spreading of the gospel, regardless of the fact that he's been in prison for two plus years awaiting trial. Without Paul, the disciples of Jesus are spreading the gospel in Philippi. And he's rejoicing with that. But in that moment, with chains, for me to, to, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I can only imagine Paul sitting back, lying. I was, I've been in the prison in Rome that Paul was in to be lying on this, this dirt concrete floor chained up. I can just see him lying back with his legs crossed with his arms behind his head, just saying, could it be any better than this? Could it be any better than this? Although I'm in prison, could it be any better than this that the gospel is still being preached, that the gospel is still being spread, that lives are being transformed because of the love story of Jesus, solely because of Jesus? Could it be any better than this? And I also know that in, AD 60, in 68 AD when Paul was, was executed by Nero as he's walking out of his prison, again cuffed and about to walk down the Roman Forum, I believe that Paul came out of his prison and just took in a deep breath of fresh air and said, could it be any better than this? Why do I think that? Because he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is Christ. This is why he says, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Could also be said because of Christ. Because of Christ, all my status, all my achievements, everything that I've gained in this life, the impeccable life that I had before Christ, everything I consider loss for the sake of Christ. And listen, starting in verse 8, listen to this emphatic language. Listen to this description. But what is more, or even further, if that wasn't enough for me to say that whatever was to my profit, if that wasn't enough, he says, even more, I consider everything a loss. Everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing, listen to what he says, of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's showing devotion, yes. Not only showing devotion, but he's showing intimacy. At this point, what Paul is preaching is what is evermore. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus in my own life. I wonder if this is the reason why Jesus doesn't make sense sometimes. In my own life, I wonder why this is the reason church doesn't make sense sometimes. I wonder why in my own life, the frustration I have with following Christ, the frustration I have with church, the frustration of not having a heart full of gratitude, I wonder if this is the reason why in my own life. In North America, I wonder if this is the reason why, because it is very difficult for me to stand before you and say that everything in my life is a loss compared to knowing the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Everything. I love my wife. He's saying everything. I love my boys. He's saying everything. I love my job. He's saying everything. I love my community. He's saying everything. Everything a loss compared to knowing the, the great surpassing of knowing Christ. I wonder if this is why church doesn't make much sense in North America. Because those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ day in and day out, not only do we lack the rejoicing, not only do we lack a heart of thanksgiving and a heart full of gratitude, but for many of us, including myself tonight, I can't say day in and day out that just simply knowing Christ is better than anything else. 
although I can say that in my rhetoric and although I can say that in my mind and although there's obviously been times in my heart that I truly believe that, my life doesn't show that all the time. And I wonder in the times that we miss that, that's why church doesn't make sense. That's why the gospel doesn't make sense. That's why Jesus doesn't make sense in North America. Because we walk around and we remain in a constant state of frustration for whatever reason individually, whether it's circumstantial or whether it's because of something else is, someone else is doing or whatever what's going on in our community or in our church or what's happening to me, whatever the case, we remain in a constant state of frustration when he's saying everything, nothing matters compared to knowing Jesus. The reality is Paul was, he was married at one time. Because in order to be part of the Sanhedrin, in order to be a Pharisee, you needed to be married. We know historically at this time, he's not married. We don't know why. We don't know how. But obviously in Paul's life, everything, when he says everything, he means everything was considered a loss for knowing the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, my Lord, both both intimate and devoted for whose sake I have lost all things. This is the third time in one and a half verses that we see him say lost. Three times. I consider them rubbish. This word rubbish literally means excrement. That's why in King James it says dung. He says, I consider everything worthless. All the status, all the achievement that I have worked my entire life, it's worthless. This literally means street filth. And again, street filth talking about tossing it out, all the excrement, all the leftovers for the dogs who were the filth, who were the scavengers. He's calling again, maybe cutting again, maybe a cutting remark at the Judaizers, but everything is worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Tonight, my prayer for me, my prayer for us, my prayer for the church, the big C church in St. Charles, in St. Louis, is that the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Again, this word knowing is the Greek word gnosko. It literally means proximity. It means knowing through experience. I think the great tragedy in North America is the fact that many know enough of the gospel to inoculate us. We know enough of the gospel to inoculate us, but we don't know enough of the gospel to truly know Christ. That, That will be the greatest tragedy in North America. With all of our mega churches, with all of our huge budgets and huge staffs and everything that we have, that we'll know enough of the gospel to inoculate us, but we won't fully know who Christ is. And here, Paul, persecutor of the church, former persecutor of the church, turned love slave, whose only ambition in life was to know Jesus more. It was his only ambition to know Jesus more. And he goes on to say, that I may gain Christ, and the way that he gains Christ, verse 9, is being found in him, not having a righteousness of his own, going back to the law, not having a righteousness, no, no confidence in the flesh, nothing that I've done, nothing that I can do, no amount of laws that I've been able to observe, which, by the way, this is important to understand that Paul isn't cutting down necessarily, he's not cutting down the law. Because we know that Christ even himself says, I've come to fulfill the law. He's not cutting down the law. He's cutting down confidence in the law. Confidence in something that we can do outside of what Christ has done. He's, his cutting remarks isn't to the, the, just the thought of the law or the observing of the law. Because even he himself observed the law. But it's having confidence in that. 
not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and by faith. Verse 10, I want to know, again, here's that intimacy. I want to know. He's given us a different perspective here. He's changing a paradigm. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship and the sharing of his suffering, becoming like him in death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Forever we are marked by Christ, those of us who call ourselves followers of Christ, those of us who understand and know the gospel, this, this, this genuine, sincere love story, this radical love story of Jesus. Those of us who know this personally, through proximity and through experience, who know this Jesus, we're forever marked by the resurrection. The resurrection, the paradigm that was created, the paradigm that took place because of the resurrection that we celebrated again this past Sunday, we're forever marked by that, that salvation, that knowing Christ, being intimately known by him and intimately knowing him is made possible for everyone. We're forever marked by this paradigm, by this reality. And for us, Paul, again, paints us a picture that this is how we know Christ, through righteousness. Chapter 2, he points, he points to the humility of Christ. Tonight, I, I'm, I'm wondering, again, even in my own life, I, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering why it's so difficult to, to consistently remain humble. In my own life, I'm wondering why it's consistently so, so difficult to raise people and put them, elevate them before ourselves. Paul gives us a great antidote for pride. The great antidote for pride that he gives us in chapter 2 is to lift others up. And I know that this church and the unbelievable legacy that this church is leaving through, we love St. Charles. And we're hoping that our church is going to get involved in the 03 and the 04 zip codes. And, but the great legacy that this church is leaving through We Love St. Charles, this movement of We Love St. Charles, which is ultimately the movement of the church, which is ultimately the movement of the gospel, yes? We pray that through the movements that we're just lifting other people up. Because as we lift other people up through humility, Christ says, lift me up and I'll draw them to myself. As we lift other people up, as we lift Christ up, Christ will draw them to himself. And so tonight as the church... My, my question for you, my question for me is, again, I wonder, because, because I don't consider everything else a loss to knowing the, to the, the great surpassing knowing of Christ, I, I, I wonder what it is that I need to repent of tonight. The things that I've made idols in my life. The things that we as a church have made idols in our life compared to, again, knowing the great, the great surpassing knowing of Christ. Tonight, what... What is in the way of knowing Jesus this way? Because for Paul, it was, it was nothing. There was nothing in the way. And he went to the depth, and he went to the levels, and he went to the extremes to make this known. Tonight, as the band comes, and we just close in a few songs of, uh, of worship and response, I, I pray for us specifically, specifically, what are the idols in our life that we have put in place of Jesus? That we cannot say, all, that everything, everything is worthless compared to knowing Christ. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that in North America, that when we get this right, when we get humility right, love and worship is just a natural overflow of what Christ is doing in us. And I, and I want to close just reading this. A.W. Tozer wrote um, a book in 1948 called The Pursuit of God. 
again, this is 60 years ago, and it, it sounds a lot like today, but here's what he says. He said, in the midst of this great chill, there are some, I, I rejoice to acknowledge, who will not be content with shallow logic. They will omit the force of, of the argument, and they will turn away with tears to hunt some lonely place and pray, oh God, show me thy glory. My prayer tonight is that we will pray, oh God, show me thy glory. They want to taste, to touch with their hearts, to see with their inner eyes the wonder that is God. I want to deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ with his people. He waits to be wanted too bad that with many of us, he waits so long, so very long in vain. Every age has its own characteristics. Remember the 60 years ago, can, it's describing brilliantly today. Every age has its own characteristics. Right now, we are in an age of religious complexity. The simplicity which is in Christ is rarely found among us. And instead, our programs, methods, organizations, and a world of nervous activities which occupy time and attention, but can never satisfy the longing of the heart. The shallowness of our inner experience, the hollowness of our worship, and the servile imitation of the world, which marks our promotional methods, all testify that we, in this day, know God only imperfectly, and the peace of God scarcely at all. I wonder if many of us lack truly knowing Christ and truly knowing the peace of God because of the idols that we've put in our lives, because of the things that we've put before the cross. And while we've got these idols in place, we're consistently and continually trying to work our way to Jesus. And so tonight I, I pray, I pray that we purge our lives of the theology of works. I pray that we purge our life of the theology of trying to work our way to Jesus. I pray that in our lives and in our hearts tonight that they will be purged of the idols. And ultimately tonight, I pray that we have a sweet moment of, of response and surrender where we can walk away. And if at least for a moment, until the next time we need to repent, at least for a moment that we can say tonight that we alongside with Paul, we join him in saying that we want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection. We want to join him in his suffering, which by the way, is just evidence and a mark of truly knowing Christ. So tonight, if only for a moment, and again, until the next time we need to repent, I pray tonight, I pray tonight that we will strive and we will take further steps in deeply, intimately knowing this person named Jesus. Father, tonight, I pray for honesty. I pray for authenticity. I pray for rawness. And to a community who is, who is experiencing persecution at the hand of Caesar, at the hand of Nero, to the, a community who is, who is experiencing, experiencing false teaching at the hand of Gnosticism, at the hand of, of Judaism. Father, the reality of today in St. Charles we're experiencing similar realities. Although different in nuance, similar realities with the false teaching that's thrown at us with 3,000 plus advertisements every single day trying to arrest our attention, trying to seduce our hearts. 
Father, we know that as we are being seduced, you still call us back to your heart. You still call us back to the truth that it's through you and you alone. Father, tonight I pray that you strip away idols, make them appearance, things that we can't say that are more or that have gotten in the way of truly knowing you. So Father, I pray for deep conviction as you pursue our hearts, as you draw us to your heart, Father. I pray for the identity in this congregation, the identity in this community, the identity in the individual's lives to be solely marked by your cross and to be solely marked by your love. Father, we love you, and may we, may we know you more in your precious name.